We're doing this series on the Apostles' Creed, so to get going, uh, you can remain seated today. Let's, uh, let's join together and say the statement of our faith. It's on your program on the back. It should be on the screen. I believe it's going to be on the screen. There we go. And if you would join me, let's, uh, let's say together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you all. Each week, uh, for the past three or four weeks, we've been saying the creed together. Uh, Notice anything different about today? He descended into hell. Um, We have not had that statement in the creed uh, as we've begun this series. Let me say that was intentional. Many of us, or at least those raised in the Methodist church, when we would stand and say the creed, uh, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say he descended into hell. Uh, some of us have grown up in churches or been part of churches where we'd say the creed and you'd say he descended into hell. There has been um, much debate over that statement, over that part of the creed, uh, for centuries. John Wesley, when he began the Methodist church, he decided, he said, we need to take that statement out. He descended into hell. Why? Well, that's debatable too, but many think because it would deter people from coming to Christ. The thought of Christ descending into hell, and he said, we're just going to take that one out, and from that time on, it's really not in a lot of Methodist churches. But it's in the original creed. And for some reason, these early church fathers, as in the people immediately following the disciples, the second and third generation, they put that statement in the creed that we needed to know. And let me just say this as, as pastor, I believe that. I believe he descended into hell. It has been intentional the, the past weeks. I've wanted to state the creed, us to state the creed without it. For the rest of our time, it will be in the creed. And I'm going to get into at least one vantage point of how he might have descended into hell today. But there has been great debate about it over centuries. So anyway, we're going to look at that, but more so it ties in with the statement before it that he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, dead, and buried. So today, that's going to be our focus. And I think it's so important too because... The cross means everything. If you've been at our Good Friday service, it's a, it's a powerful service, the Tenebrae service. We do it at 11.30 on Good Friday. And, and we highlight the cross. So today, the part in the creed is going to be highlighting the cross and what happened on the cross. And it's so important to know. You know, I, I think about this because in summers past, I've done different sermon series. And I've heard people, you know, they've said to me or other pastors, you know, summer, you know, do a... 
you know, do like a hot topic series, you know, like Summer of Sex, you know, that, I mean, that'd be, a, that's a cool title, or, uh, you know, do some series on movies and stuff, and all that is good and dandy, but, you know, this stuff, really, the creed, these statements, uh, there's nothing more important in our lives, and really, when you get into it, what I found, too, in the, there's nothing more fascinating, more fascinating than this stuff, so, you know, again, not summer of sex, not summer of the movies, but it is, uh, it is very, very relevant. So with that, I want to read today Jesus on the Cross, passage John 19, and I'm going to be reading verse 25 through 30. If you have your Bibles, uh, bear with me. John 19, verse 25 through 30. And as you're turning to that, I do think that a couple of statements that Jesus makes on the cross, I believe it shows us why Jesus went to the cross, what he did on the cross, and how it can change us. So John 19, verse 25 through 30, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up. His spirit. Again, this passage can show us why Jesus went to the cross, what exactly he did, and how it can forever, forever change us. First off, why he went to the cross. I want to highlight what he said in verse 28. He said, I thirst. I thirst. Or some translations, I am thirsty. He said, I thirst. Now, the interesting thing, let's think back. Jesus had gone through enormous suffering up to that point. He had suffered under Pontius Pilate. He had been beaten. He had been whipped, scourged, nails driven in his hands and his feet. And yet, for some reason, they highlight here that Jesus said, I thirst. They don't highlight him, you know, in pain, being scourged, in pain as the nails... They highlight, I thirst. I thirst, he said. Why is this? Well, it does say, he said this to fulfill the scripture. And if you look at Psalms twenty-two nineteen, the psalmist says, he was poured out like water. The same psalm that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even more, John would have known this. The early readers of scripture would have known this. That thirst, being thirsty, was a metaphor for what the soul needed. And when someone would say, I thirst, it's like they're saying that there is an internal, internal, agonizing separation from God. And this is what Jesus was experiencing. You can look through... Again, the Psalms, you can look through Isaiah, you can look through Jeremiah. There was always this connection with thirst and being thirsty for the soul. J. 
Jesus said this to the woman at the well. Jesus said, I have water where you will never thirst. I can give you water that will, will rise up like a fountain of life in your body. And so our thirst is, yes, the physical, but it's so much more. Because Jesus had already, again, been beaten, been whipped, nails. This is in his soul. And it's saying, and Scripture would say, that when you thirst, if you put anything other than God in your soul, you are going to continue being thirsty. You're going to continue being dry. Your life's going to continue being a, a desert, more or less. And then even more, some of you probably know this, some doctors in the room, but to die, physically to die by dehydration, and I was reading about this this past week, to die by dehydration, the last stage of right before death, your, your internal organs internally are like on fire, just, just burning. And you eventually die, your, your, your internal life, your internal heart, your internal organs, they, it's like they explode. And this is what, this is what Jesus was facing. Physically, but also spiritually, also his soul separated from God, saying to us, if you put anything other than than God, anything other than Christ in our hearts, we will continue to thirst. And then Jesus was even saying something more. That there was this there was this internal burning, this internal fire, this holocaust of flame that Jesus was experiencing right then. Luke 16. If you want to turn to it, I just want to highlight a couple of verses from it. Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was the rich man's slave, and the rich man went to hell. Went to hell. And in hell, he sees Lazarus, who was poor all his earthly life, in heaven. And the rich man calls out, this is Luke 16, I believe it's verse 23 through 25. Luke 16, 23, 25. The rich man's in hell, in Hades. It says, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. What I highlight is the rich man was in hell and what was he experiencing? He was thirsty. He was thirsty. Say, so take a take a little water and just put it on my tongue. But the interesting thing to see about that, he was in hell, but he was calling out to Abraham and he said, Send Lazarus. He still looked at Lazarus as his servant. He still looked at Lazarus as his slave. He was saying, That boy, he still serves me. Abraham, you and I, you're the big shot. We can talk. Send Lazarus to, to serve me. He says internally, he was still holding on to pride. Internally, he was still holding on to his power. Internally, he had not repented. He had not asked for forgiveness. And he was on fire internally of pride and self. He's burning. Jesus on the cross, when he was crying out, I thirst, 
People realize, yeah, that's like the soul that needs God. But he was saying something so much more. Jesus on the cross being thirsty, he was experiencing hell. Literal separation from God of the soul. Eternal separation. Eternal thirst. Eternal suffering. Eternal desolation. Eternal fire inside so that we could have a fountain of life. When it says in the creed, he descended into hell, again, there's been much debate of what happened, but on the cross, he was experiencing hell. On the cross, he was descending into hell. There's an old hymn that says, I think it's uh, breaking down or tearing down the doors of hell for a heavenly cause. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was tearing down. He was busting open the gates of hell so that we would, wouldn't have to experience it. It is a heavenly cause for you and I, for us, to experience heaven. Jesus was experiencing literally on the cross. Not just, I mean, the physical pain immense, but, but the reason, I mean, the reason they're not showcasing the nails. The reason they're not showing the whip and the scourge. Because compared to this, they're like mosquito bites. But here, the separation, the agony, and he, he was experiencing eternal suffering and agony. He's experiencing hell for us so that we could have heaven. Why did he go to the cross? For you. Why did he go to the cross for me? Why did he go to the cross for us? Why did he go to the cross to pay the ransom? Why did he go to the cross to experience, honestly, what we deserve. And I hate saying that. I mean, I honestly hate because, you know, you want to be encouraging and stuff, but there, the truth of the matter is, the songs we sing, Jesus paid the ransom. Jesus is our Savior. He took on what we deserve. And our thirst was, was showing us just the depths of, of what he was experiencing, what he was feeling, where he was going. What did he achieve on the cross? What did he accomplish on the cross? Another thing he said right after this, verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is finished. It's interesting because the Greek word for finished is the words pronounced, uh, I don't know if I can even pronounce it, but it's telestoy. And to be finished, that's literally saying like finished completely. So Jesus is not just saying, I've, I've done it. It's finished. Jesus is saying, I've done it completely. I've done it utterly. I've finished it completely. I've finished the work I've had to do completely and entirely. He's saying, it is finished. Well, what did he do? What did he do? On your sermon card, you should have it. 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. He did everything possible to bring us to God. He was doing everything possible to get us close to God. The verse says to draw us near to God. Yes, he died, but he suffered. He took on our suffering. He experienced eternal suffering. He experienced hell. He did everything that he could. He paid our ransom to bring us close to God. And he said, it is finished. It's complete. It's finished completely. That's what he did. 
you could say that the last words of Christianity, the last words of Christianity should be, it is finished. It's finished. It's done. That's the, the message of our faith. It's done. Buddha, Buddha from Buddhism, when he died, Buddha, his last words were, I think it was, don't stop striving or never cease from striving. Jesus would be saying the opposite. He said, don't you dare strive. I've done it. I've finished it. It is complete. Religion would say, finish the job. Our work ethic, our type A personality folks, our get it done folks would be like, finish the job. Jesus would say, it is finished. It's finished. And see, the thing is, that's, that's the words of Christ. That's the, the final words he said on the cross. That's really the words of our faith. It's done. And we don't get that. I mean, we really don't get that. I mean, I, I don't get that. Here's what I mean. I said this last week. I love the analogy of a seatbelt. We all know, hey, seatbelts save lives. I mean, we know it conceptually. But a lot of folks won't wear their seatbelt, but then might, might see a buddy or family member, you know, with their face messed up or their head bashed in. They didn't. Then you know it. And when I say this, I'm going to truly know. I mean, to truly know it is finished. And we don't. I don't. How, do, how, how can I say it? Because the way we live our lives... We live our lives. There are four types of people. All of them are in our church family. I, I'm one of them. Four types who don't know that it's finished, okay? I think you, each of you are one of these. Maybe more of them. I know I'm, I'm really one of them. So think about this. Here's, here's how we don't know that it's done. First type is somebody comes into church. This church, any church. Man, their lives are jacked up, you know? I mean, just in sin and everything. Hear the gospel, word, worship, prayer, communion, the sacrament. They're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You give me grace. You give me a second chance. You give me a second chance to show you that I can be worthy of you. Okay, that's true and good. But Jesus doesn't give us a second chance so we can be worthy. Jesus is our worthiness. It's done. He died on the cross to be our worthiness. And what happens is... we. We hear the second chance and we say, man, let me, let me, let me do this. Now I'm going to read my Bible. Now I'm going to come to church. Now I'm going to tithe. Now I'm going to give. And then at a point, man, it gets to be like a drain. And it gets to be hard. And we're, we're striving and we're making that effort all for a second chance. Grace is so much more than a second chance. Grace is life. Grace is done. Grace is paid for. And so some of you, some of us can be in church and be like, oh, yeah, I got my second chance. And looking at it that way is, is not enough. We don't know that it's really finished and we can rest in that. We don't know it. We want you to know it. The other type of person is the inferior Christian. They get it. Maybe they have the moment at some point. But then they're like, you know, man, I got all this guilt from when I was jacking up my life. I got all this shame from what I've done. I mean, and they just feel less than throughout. They feel like, hey, i got to work to show I'm really a good person. Hey, I, my life has really changed. And get insecure around church. Get insecure in a small group. Hey, I can't say anything. I mean, look, look at me. I'm, I'm just, you know, my life's messed up. They're just, they feel inferior. And they don't know. They don't really know that it's finished. And can rest in the finished work of Christ. The other folks are the opposite. They're the superior ones, you know. They're the ones who think they did it all to finish the work. And if some of you are already thinking about people who are like this, you're just falling in the trap right there. You know what I'm saying? But you're thinking, oh, they're superior. No, we, we, fall, we all can fall into that. And these are the types that are like, man, I don't know if I want to hang out 
with that type of person. I mean, he's still in sin. Their marriage is struggling. You know, still an addict, still carousing. I'm going to separate. I'm not going to witness to. I'm not going to really be in relationship with. I'm above them. I'm doing the right thing, following the rules, doing all this. And don't realize it's nothing that we've done, nothing you've done, nothing that I've done. It's the finished work of Christ. And then the fourth is, and this is the one I really fall into. I call it driven, addicted Christians. Driven, addicted Christians. What I mean by that is that the finished work of Christ is not enough. Like we can know it, but we take more, um, we get more solace in our accomplishments. Whether in work, in a career, in academia, in the church as pastor. To, hey, get it done. And look at these accomplishments. And look at these achievements. Or maybe it's in relationships. And we love to work. Or we love to love folks. So much so that we just smother them. And we're driven and we're addicted. And we don't rest in the finished work of Christ. Think to yourself. And th- those four types. Coming in, oh, I got my grace a second chance. And then just get worn out. Or in fear, i got this shame and guilt. Or superior, hey, I am better. I've, look what I've done. Or just, hey, i got to do, i got to do, i got to do in church, in work, in life, everything. It's finished. It's the words of Christ. Can't we rest in that? We can try. But to rest, it's finished. It's finished. There's nothing else to say. It's finished. I know you're thinking like, man, that's, that's just so easy. It's, that's the point. It really is the point. I'm just going to leave it there for a minute. It's finished. Jesus has done it. I said I was just going to leave it there for a minute. Last thing. Why I went to the cross? To take on what we deserve. What he accomplished is finished. How does it change us? How does it change us? This was the first word I read, or the first statement, and I wanted to do them backwards, but this is John 19, 25, 26. Again, it says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. How does the cross change us? How do those verses show that it changes? What Jesus was doing, he's taking care of his mom. He's taking care of his mama, like a good boy, like the oldest son. Here's the thing, though. Jesus had a lot of brothers. Jesus had brothers. Jesus could have, you know, given his mom to a brother. Hey, you know, take care of mom. I mean, no pensions, no nursing homes. Take care of mom. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He gave her to John, his disciple. He gave her to John. Scripture, well, the book of John, who loved Christ. Who loved Christ. Who believed in Christ. See, the thing is, his brothers at that point, his family, didn't believe who he said he was. They didn't believe Jesus was on the cross. Now, James, his brother came to believe and started leading the church of Jerusalem. But at that point, they didn't believe. And Jesus told John, hey, take care of my mother. 
What I mean when I say the cross changes us, what I mean is like relationships change at the foot of the cross. Relationships are defined at the foot of the cross. The truth of the matter is, our lives are defined by the cross. What I mean is, the most important relationships of our lives should be our Christian brothers and sisters, should be our church family, this church, other churches, the church of Christ. When we are changed by the cross of Christ, if we are truly changed, then our world looks totally different. Then we, we say this all the time, and it's not, I don't believe it's a cliche, but it can become brother in Christ, sister in Christ. That's the real deal. That's what Jesus was saying on the cross. He was saying, you believe me, you know me, John. Here, take care of my mother. Relationships had changed at that point for Jesus' mother, for John. At the cross, relationships change for us. And this, honestly, I believe we don't get this, we don't get the first two points of what Jesus has done for us. Because, see, we live in a world where church has been, it's effervescent. I mean, it's all around. I mean, we know, like I said, the Sunday school answer. We can roll out the Sunday school response. But do we really look at one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we treat one another as brothers and sisters of Christ? Are we really the family of Jesus? Or are our true families, as in like our earthly families, do we think they're our true families? Or is status more important than brother and sister of Christ? Or is positions in the world more important than the family of Christ? You see what I'm saying? It's how we define ourselves. Do we define ourselves by the cross? Or do we define ourselves by our our earthly family name? Or do we define ourselves by our, our status in the community or in the world? Do we define ourselves by our degrees? Do we define ourselves by our, our jobs, our careers? Do we define whatever it is? Christian is taking the name of Christ. The cross should change us. It should change us. For we're part of a new family, a greater family, a larger family, a family that, yes, is not of this world, but is eternal forever. And should change how we how we act, what we do, and what we say. It's tough, man, and this is it's kind of the, the most challenging, as I was saying, this the most challenging point even for me, because, you know, we live in a culture that divides. I said this over and over again. Whether you look at the world at large, or you look at our country, or you look at just Metro Jackson, you know, it's, it's a divided place. Ministering here now for eight, it's a divided place, you know. You got your Rankin folks and your Madison folks, and, you know, you got your Jackson and Northeast Jackson, then you got the race card. I'm not trying to throw the race, it's just the reality. It's just divided. Then you got the status. I always say it like this. Jackson is like, and I, and I love this, feel called to minister, but Jackson is like Groundhog Day from eighth grade on, you know, just a repeat of Mr. and Miss so-and-so and, you know, the status. It is like Groundhog Day over and over again. Ninth grade, you start, t- you know, college. I mean, it is. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And so that's what defines people. But it's, it's not supposed to be like that in the church. We're family. We're family. So if we're family, do we treat each other like that? Our family ministry, our kids. Man, I love, love, love those of you who take a month, sometimes five weeks, to serve our kids. Man, thank you. Several people come up to me like, you know, I hate doing it because I miss a month of worship, but I want to love our kids. Man, thank you. Thank you. I don't say that enough. I'm sorry I don't say that. Thank you. Our youth. Please pray for our youth. We're going through a transition. 
for a new youth leader. We're going to form a strong parent and just youth leader team. We're family. We're going to do this. If there's conflict in the family, do we treat it as brothers and sisters of Christ? Some of y'all know, man, y'all have come to Bellwood and you're like, man, this is family. This is my family. I love my family. For others, it's changed relationships. My relationships in my own life have changed. Not just like friends, but like family members, you know. Like, grandmother, I can't come to Sunday lunch every week anymore, you know. It's, it's you know, ministry. Being the family of Christ changes. Brother, sister in Christ. And does it change the way we look at those who aren't Christians? Those here. Some of you, I mean, love you, but some of you probably have not experienced the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the cross in your life. How far will we go? How far will we go? We can look at the cross, and we can look at what Jesus did, and we look, can look at how far he has gone. Can we go that far? I mean, seriously, can we go that far? How far will we go for people in your earthly family who don't know Christ, for people you're in a relationship who don't know Christ, for, for people who don't... How far will we go as a church? How far will you go? Look how far God's gone for you. Jesus has gone to hell for us. Look how far he went. We can certainly go pretty far to love, to be Christ, to be brothers and sisters of Christ. 